you have the opportunity to come and hear, in addition to a normal Sunday, a different man of God come and share God's Word. We have purposefully, as leadership, set aside that time from next Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night. We've set aside that time to say we want to be refreshed by the presence of God. We want for God to come and speak to us and revive our hearts so that we can be the people of God that he wants us to be. You've heard me talk about revival before. I much prefer to talk about what happens in the presence of God, and we're going to do that in just a moment. But can I pause just a second and really just say to you that we are living in a time, our generation right now, at this moment in our history, we are living at a critical time in the United States and in North America. I've shared with you before how around the world more people are coming to faith in Christ every day than at any other time in history. If you broke it out on an hourly basis, that 82,000 people a day would work out to 3,400 people an hour. And in the hour that we spend together or so in this worship service, more people will come to faith in Christ than came to faith on the day of Pentecost. And yet 93% of all the people coming to faith in Christ today are coming to know him outside of North America. We are sending missionaries around the world, and we must take the gospel to the nations. But if you were to rank those nations in terms of lostness, sheer numbers of people that don't know Christ, this nation, this continent, North America, would rank as the third or the fourth largest mission field on the planet. Today, as you and I meet together here, over 83% of Americans are not in a church of any kind. 75% of our Kansans are not in a church of any kind today. Two-thirds of Arkansas Baptists on our rolls are not in a church today. And brother, sister, that should break our hearts. It's not always been that way. If we had time, I could talk to you about the men and women that came to this country and settled it, the Puritans, the separatist Christians that left the United Kingdom and came and settled this land with the conviction that if we could establish a society that honors God, Jesus would come back. That's what they thought. And their thinking and their prayers and their heartbeat still pulses in the ancient documents that guide our country. I could talk to you about a period in our history when in every major institution of education, God was being mocked, and that was in the 1730s. And how in 
1735, in a little village in Massachusetts, Northampton, Massachusetts, how revival came one winter to one church. And over 400 people came to know Christ, mostly young adults and young people, and Jonathan Edwards began to know what it was to experience the presence of God. And how a few years later, George Whitfield and John and Charles Wesley came to preach in this country. And from 1740 to 1742, over 20% of the colonial population was saved and came to Christ. Out of that movement, what we know today as Southern Baptists were born. I don't have time to tell that story. But we can trace our roots to that particular revival. I could talk to you about historic revivals that have swept our country again and again and again in the 1790s all the way up into the 1840s. Some scholars say it was probably the longest sustained period of spiritual awakening ever in the history of the Christian church, and it happened in our land. I could tell you how in 1858 to 1860, all over the United States, Business districts would shut down at noon and people would gather together in public places to pray. And the great prayer revival swept this country. Why do we have Wednesday night prayer meeting? Why in some old southern towns does the traditional square, all the shops, close at noon? Because they trace that activity. They can't explain it. They don't know why they do it. They thought it was just time to go fishing but they trace it back to that prayer revival of 1858 to 1860. And I could talk to you about global awakenings. I could talk to you about the Welsh revival that was just part of a global movement of God from 1904 to 1906. I could talk to you about Azusa Street. I could talk to you about the great Shantung revival in North China in 1928 to 1932 and how our own Southern Baptist missionaries were so affected by that that they came home and influenced a whole generation of pastors and preachers. Many of them you would know if I called their names. I could talk to you about how 1945 to 1955, all around the world, people were swept into the churches. And some of you tasted that in Arkansas. In 1950, we baptized more people in Arkansas than ever before or ever since. I could talk to you about the Jesus People Movement that began about 1970 and went for, depending on where you were in the country, went for five years, six years, eight years, ten years. And I'm a product of that. And some of you are a product of that. We baptized more young adults and more children and more youth from 1970 to 1975 than we ever had before. We baptized over 400,000 people a year in those five years. Every year for five years, over 400,000, almost a half million people a year. Last time that we have a number, we baptized fewer people And Southern Baptists, most recently, 2012, the last year we have a number for, we baptized fewer people than we have since 1948. A 64-year low. The last major movement of God that that comes to mind that I can think of occurred in 1995. When a pastor in the first service of a church like this, at the invitation time just felt led, does anyone have anything to say? The young student asked if he could say something. 
He was a student from Howard Payne University in Brownwood, Texas. And he just stood before the congregation and he confessed sin and he asked forgiveness. And people began to quietly weep around the congregation. And then someone else said, I've got something I want to say. And it went through into the time that the next service was supposed to start. And people were waiting outside and they said, why hadn't the first service stopped? And they said, because it's not over yet. And they came on in and sat down. And when the TV cameras came on in the second service, they were videotaping a revival. And in that county, revival broke out in six or seven other churches that morning at the same time. No other connection to any other church. And at Coggan Avenue Baptist Church, a few weeks later, I sat down across the table from that pastor, and I said, tell me what happened. And he poured his story out. And I said, what? How can I pray for you? And he said, my greatest fear is that I would mess it up. And John Avant continues to pastor today. And he still hungers and longs for the presence of God to come to the church he pastors. That revival spread from campus to campus to campus to campus all over the United States. And when school let out for the summer, it was over. But many of those students are on foreign mission fields today and are walking with God today. I want to make two observations about what's happening to us today. The title of this morning's message is Ruined Churches, Running Christians, and Revival. Ruined Churches, Running Christians, and Revival. We need revival. We always need revival. I don't care where you are in your walk with God. You always need the presence of God to come. There's always somewhere else He wants to take you. Always something else He wants you to know. Always something else He wants to show you. No one here is excluded. Two observations about what's wrong. First, churches do not know what they are. Churches in our land do not know what they are. I've encountered a lot of different points of view over the years. You have too. You know this. People think of church as a physical building or a place. We go to that place, and that's a church. It's a Sunday event. Church starts in 10 minutes. We think of it that way. A service club. Some people expect the church just to be a place of community activism that cares about the community, addresses social problems. For some people, a church is a self-improvement strategy. What you need to do, do, son, is get back in church. That's what we tell people. For others, it's a business concern, and we measure success in terms of our buildings and our budgets and our numerical successes. Some people refer to church as my church. I don't know if you'll ever hear me say that. I don't know if you'll ever hear me say my people or my church because I really don't think of it that way. It's his church and it's his people. Sometimes we think of it as my church I've seen pastors, deacons, and church leaders get in fights because they're fighting over whose church it is. 
But in 1 Corinthians 3.16, we find out what the church really is when Paul writes, do you not know, and it's second person plural, do y'all not know, he says, that y'all are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. We are, for better or worse, good, bad, and ugly, we are the temple of God, the dwelling place for God Almighty. Churches do not know what they are. And when they don't know what they are, they operate any other way than being the dwelling place of the Spirit of God, they are ruined. Earlier in chapter 3 of that passage, you can go back and read it for yourself. But the Apostle Paul points out the things that go wrong when people forget who they are without the Spirit. He says they need milk instead of meat. There's biblical illiteracy. They're ignorant of the Scripture. There's rivalry, envy, he says. There's strife and fighting. There's divisions. There's powerlessness. Do you not know that the Spirit of God dwells in you, he says. Churches do not know what they are. Christians do not know whose they are. Christians do not know whose they are. What is a Christian? Some people think being an American is synonymous with being a Christian. If you talk to Muslim friends overseas, that's what they think. Everyone in America is a Christian. One of the reasons they are not open to the gospel is because they see sin and pornography and filth and all the kinds of stuff we produce in media, and they say, that's a Christian country? Christians are immoral. Christians don't look to be holy people. I've had those conversations. Some people think Being a Christian is being an American. Someone think being a Christian is someone who's a good person. We talk to someone and we say, well, that's not very Christian. Or someone passes away, say he was a good Christian man. What we're saying is he was a moral person. We think sometimes a Christian is simply someone who affirms the teachings of the church or the Bible or that it's someone who belongs to the church. The truth is this. Here's the truth. A Christian is someone who has the Holy Spirit living inside of them. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? So the church is a temple. We are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit of God. But you are a temple. If you know Christ and you put your trust in Christ, you are a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit of God. And you belong to him. But some of you are running. Some of you are running from him. You belong to him, but you're not acting like you belong to him. In Haggai, this little bitty book near the end of the Old Testament, you may have to look it up in the table of contents, but in Haggai chapter 1, there's a story about another temple of God that was lying in ruins, and there's a story here about a people of God who also were running from God. And I want us to look at that story for a few minutes this morning. What happens during personal and corporate revival. Number one, the Word of God comes and exposes your spiritual poverty and your empty life. During revival, the Word of God comes and exposes your spiritual poverty and your empty life. Listen to Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. The date... Believe it or not, they can actually date this, was August 29th, 520 B.C. 
August 29th, 520 B.C. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat but do not have enough. You drink but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little, and when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on grain and the new wine. A drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. If revival is ever going to come to win, the people of God will have to stop running from the will of God. This all began when it says the word of God came. Would you just think with me for just a moment the significance of that? I want you to go back to a time before you were born. Back before there was the United States. Back before there was uh, any of the stories that you find in the Bible. Back before creation before God ever spoke anything into being, all there was, there was no light, there was no matter, there was nothing that existed. There was just God. And you were in his mind. You were in his thoughts. And he knew you, and he loved you, and in his thoughts, every breath, every moment, every day of your life, your purpose, your meaning, your joys, your destiny was formed in his mind. And if you are not seeking him, you're running from him. 
And how does God arrest us? The word of the Lord came. And when you are sitting next week, or maybe as you're reading the Scripture in your quiet time this week, or even in this moment, or in a Sunday school class, if your life is going to turn, it begins with that moment when the Word of God comes and confronts you and speaks to you. If you run long enough, you can outrun everything that God had in mind for you. You can't outrun the greatest blessings of your life. You can outrun your greatest usefulness. It's time to stop running. Eight diagnostic questions you can ask and that can indicate whether you're running or not. Number one, have you let fear shut down your heart for God? Have you let fear shut down your heart for God? There's a story behind Haggai. We don't have time to tell it, but the Assyrians came and took away the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. They never had a godly king. They never sought the Lord. The kingdom was divided, and the Assyrians came in 722 and carried them off. Judah lasted. Sometimes they had a good king. Sometimes they had a bad king. And God had formed this people for himself, that they would be a light to the nations, that through them people would come to faith in God. And yet they had rebelled and they worshipped idols and they fell into darkness. And so in 586 B.C., it wasn't the Assyrians, but the Babylonians came and carried Judah off into captivity. And then the Babylonians were overrun by the Persians. And there was a king, Darius, and he came and made a decree. And the people in 738, uh, 538 B.C. were set free and about 50,000 of them came back to the remains of Jerusalem. The temple had been destroyed. The walls were gone. Everything was gone. And these people felt led. It wasn't all the Jews came home, but 50,000 of them came home. And they made the sacrifices. They endured the hardships. They laid the foundation of the temple. And then their enemies began to criticize them and intimidate them, and they became afraid in Ezra 4. And they stopped Rebuilding the temple, which was indicative, was, was a symbol, the presence of God. And they stopped. It wasn't just about the temple, it was about their relationship with him. And fear shut it down. And maybe in your life, you've let fear shut down something that you know that God wants you to be, to do, to pursue. But you've let fear stop you. Nothing happened for 16 years. The foundation was laid. Until August 29th, 520 B.C. Number two, are you ignoring an early direction from God in your life? Starting well doesn't mean you're going to finish well. Maybe you, when you were young, your heart pulsed for him. You had a sense of his leading. You had a desire to serve him. You knew where he was taking you, and for whatever reason, that stopped. Are you ignoring that early direction? Number three, have you stopped short of what God wants you to do? You know what God wanted you to do, and you started it, but then you stopped. Sam Jones was a Methodist preacher in the 19th century, and he used to call people to repent and turn from certain sinful activities so that they would be faithful to God. They called his meetings quitting meetings. 
Because people quit drinking and they quit smoking and they quit cussing and they quit doing these things. Quitting meaning. One woman came down. All these other people had quit swearing, drinking, smoking, lying, gossiping. And he asked this woman, he said, what are you quitting? She said, I'm guilty of not doing anything. And so I'm going to quit doing that. And maybe that's where you are. You're not doing anything. You come, you sit, you listen. It's a good sermon, it was a bad sermon, you go home. You're not doing anything. Number four, have you allowed responsibilities to crowd out your God-given opportunities? You're doing the right stuff. You're taking care of your family. You're doing, you're responsible. You're doing all that stuff, but you've let it crowd out. You're just doing what you know to do. You're staying busy. You're being responsible. You're taking care of business. But the opportunities that God has for you, they have been squeezed out by daily stuff. Number five, are you basing your life decisions on personal or popular opinion? The people said, it's not time to build the temple. It's not time. We've got to take care of our houses. We've got to take care of our business. We've got to take care of our stuff. And then we'll build the temple someday. Someday I'll get to it. And that's what I was saying, and that's what they were saying, and they're telling it to each other. And so I have this personal opinion that it's not time to build the temple. And everybody else shares that same opinion. And so we all go together into major disobedience as a group. And we say it's just not time. And are you basing the movement of your life on personal or popular opinion? Number six, have you organized your life around your priorities or God's priorities? He says, because of my house that is in ruins, you're all running to your own house. Everyone runs to his own house. Take care of your stuff. You ask somebody to do something. You ask somebody to serve. You ask somebody to become part of something that God is doing. And they say, well, let me pray about it, pastor. Let me pray about it, preacher. Did you pray about how much TV you watch this week? Did you pray about playing golf? Did you pray about taking a trip? You don't pray about the stuff that you want to do. What about his priorities? What about his house? What about what he wants? And if you let your priorities squeeze that out. Number seven, are you delaying obedience until the right time? Are you saying it's not time, it's not time? Are you delaying it for some point in the future? I'm saying to you, don't wait. Don't wait. Number eight, are you deeply dissatisfied with the life that you are pursuing? Nothing satisfies you when God is hemming you in to himself. Your work will not satisfy you. Your recreation will not satisfy you. Deep down, there's going to be a dissatisfaction and unhappiness, and it's going to keep bouncing around inside your soul. And nothing will please you. Nothing will make you happy. And it may be an indicator that you are running. And so it all begins, the Word of God comes and exposes your spiritual poverty and empty life. But secondly, revival is seen as the presence of God redirects your actions, consumes your attention, and captures your affection. Redirects your actions, consumes your attention, and captures your affection. I want to read 
verses 12 and 13. The people are responding to this message. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. What happened when they heard this message? Well, their actions changed. They went from disobedience to obedience. They began to obey him. And notice it says they obeyed his voice and the words of the prophet. Now, you may be sitting here listening to me. You're hearing my words, but do you hear his voice? You see the distinction in the text? They heard his voice and the words of the prophet, but they heard the voice of God. And are you hearing the voice of God? When Sammy Tippett speaks, you may hear his words, but do you hear the voice of God? Your Sunday school teacher may speak words, but do you hear the voice of God? And that redirects us. And then it redirected their attention. It said they were fearful. They were, they were riveted in their attention because of the presence of God. They sensed His presence. They went and did what they were supposed to do. They obeyed. They went to the mountains. They got the wood. They got the stuff. And then they just came back and they just stood there in the presence of God, trembling. And their attention was riveted Literally before the face of God. That's what it means. And then he redirected, redirected their affection. Now this is implied in the text to me. But they went and got the stuff. They stood there. They were fearful in the presence of God. And nothing else was happening. You say, how do you know that, Don? I'll show you in just a moment. But nothing else was happening. They're standing there. They got the wood. They got the lumber. They're fearful in the presence of God. They've obeyed his voice. They've done what they know to do. And what was going through their minds at that moment? Now, this is a little speculative, but hang with me. What was going through their minds at that moment? Are we going to be like our fathers before us? Are we going to be another generation that blows it? Are we going to lose the nation again because we failed God and we, we didn't finish the temple? Is he going to receive us? Is he going to accept us? And then the word of God came to Haggai again. And God says to them, I am with you. I am with you. Now when did that message come? I want you to look at verse 15 for just a moment. It says, that when he said, I am with you, when Haggai reported God's word, I am with you, it says in verse 15 that all this happened on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. The first message came on the first day. The second message came on the 24th day. For 23 days, there was a gap. They went and got the wood. They're standing there before God. And there's this process of God redirecting their actions their attention was changed. Their affection was changed. I'm caring now 
If I was one of those guys standing there, I'm caring now more about what God thinks. What does God want? Not about my house, but about his house. And it was a process. Sometimes we read these things and we just collapse it all together and we just think, oh, overnight, everything's better. No, there was a journey. There was a change. There was a process taking place. I believe there was repentance. They stopped what they were doing. They stopped running. They looked at those questions. All of those questions were going through their minds and through their hearts. And they had stopped running. It was not ultimately about building a brick and mortar temple. It was about God coming to a place where he could say to his people again, I am with you. From that moment when nothing was made, nothing was created, no molecule, no atom existed, just the mind of God, to this moment, all that the Father wants is your heart. For you to receive him, to be able to say and know that he is with you. Well, revival involves the word of God coming and exposing us, the presence of God redirecting us. But then finally, number three, the spirit of God empowers your response. The spirit of God empowers your response. I want you to listen to verse 14 of Haggai. This is on day 24. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. God said, I am with you. But he doesn't want to just be with you. Friend, he wants to be in you. And everything you need to do the will of God, he will provide. You need resources, he provides that. You need strength, he provides that. You need guidance, he gives that. You need power, he gives that. He came and stirred up the spirit of the people. They were broken, they were devastated, they were fearful. And he came and stirred up their spirit. And that temple got built. When you came in, most of you, some of you may not have gotten it. You got a coffee stir when you came in. A coffee stir. You said, what is he doing now? I want you to use this as a prayer focus this week. A prayer focus this week. That as you pray about Sammy Tippett next week, as you pray about what God is saying to you even after today, that you would take this and look at these three points of what characterizes revival. Would you pray over those? God, would your word come? God, would your presence come and redirect my life? Lord, would you come and would your spirit stir my spirit up? Would you stir me? Probably the only time a preacher will ever ask you to pray over a coffee stir. God, would you stir me? 
There's a popular book that's out right now. It's a good book by Mark Batterson called The Circle Maker. The whole book, the whole idea for that book came from an evangelist, a Welsh evangelist who had experienced the Welsh revival in 1904. His name was Gypsy Smith. And Gypsy was asked one time, how can revival begin? How does revival start? Gypsy said, what you got to do is you go in your room and you take a piece of chalk and you draw a circle around yourself and you sit down in the middle of that circle and you say, God, you pray, God, would you bring revival to this circle? <laughs> God, would you bring revival to this circle? Everything inside this circle, would you bring revival to that? He said, then revival will start. Then revival will begin. It's got to begin, not with the pastor, not with the staff, not with the deacons, not with the Sunday school teacher. Revival begins right here. This morning, the greatest privilege that I have is to share with you that Jesus Christ loves you that Jesus Christ was sent on a rescue mission for your soul, that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, the exact representation of everything God wanted you most to know about Him, you can see in Jesus Christ. It's my pleasure to tell you that when Christ died on the cross, He died for your sins, all of them, your past sins, your present sins, even your future sins. And God raised him from the dead. He accepted his sacrifice. It is proof of your sins that they can be forgiven. He raised Jesus from the dead. Death is the wages of sin. Jesus conquered that. Conquered death. He overcame even the penalty of sin. And he reigns as Lord of the universe. And he is ready, if you will call on him, to come into your life. To forgive you for your sins. And to change you from the inside out. And if it's your desire today to be saved, that's what we call that. If it's your desire today to put your trust in Christ, in just a moment we're going to stand and sing. There'll be pastors, leaders at the end of each aisle. Come, take them by the hand and say, I want to be saved. I want to trust Christ. And they'll answer your questions. They'll share scriptures with you. Scriptures like John 3.16 that says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever... That includes you. Whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have everlasting life. But you've got to believe on him. You've got to put your trust on him. You've got to surrender to him. And he'll save your soul. Others of you, children of God, brothers and sisters, you may need to just bow your head. Say, dear God, I want to begin right now. I want to pray that your word would come and speak to me. I want to pray that your presence would come and redirect me. I want to pray, dear God, that your spirit would come and stir me. Or maybe you just have a need and you need to pray. Just like we did earlier in the service. The altar's open. The altar's open.